Our scripture passage this morning is from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello again, everyone. As we continue on in our Advent series, I want to start by taking you back to your childhood for a second. When you were a child, how did you think of heaven? How did you picture it? Where did you think heaven was? I had a friend who has, or I have a friend who has kids, and their family was talking about heaven, and one of their kids, as they do, you know, says, heaven's in the sky. One of their other children chimed in and said, no, heaven is in the ground because that's where we buried our cats, right? Well, I think we all, we all have had imagina- an imagination for heaven since a very young age. And some, some of us have had our imaginations formed by rumors or cultural understandings more than anything else. And while the Bible speaks a good deal about heaven, we all seem to feel like we haven't quite grasped it. And maybe that's because heaven somehow doesn't get the attention from us that it deserves. You know, in my short time being a pastor, I've interacted with some people that are practicing the way of Jesus, and I've discovered that many are a lot like me. We say we believe in heaven, but we don't really talk about it. And why is that? Why don't we talk more about it? Well, I'm pretty convinced that one reason is that we're all living our everyday lives and we find ourselves busy with the responsibilities of adult life. And all of those myriad of responsibilities tend to crowd out our reflection time on heaven. But beyond that, I have three reasons just right off the bat that we don't talk more about heaven. And these are formed by our our senior pastor, Tom, and he's done some really good thinking in these reasons. The first reason is that we live in a dominant cultural narrative that really doesn't engage heaven. The most engagement in heaven that we see publicly is is usually like a Facebook post where someone says something like, Matt is watching over me from heaven. But even a statement like this is getting more and more siphoned out of our cultural milieu. There's a sociologist, Charles Taylor, who described our moment as the imminent frame And this is the assumption that human life is really only about the here and now. The thoughts about the afterlife, these are from an enchanted age, an age filled with myths, a bygone age, an age that is ill-suited for a scientific and modern world. A second reason is that heaven is just a concept to us, and the concept of heaven is, is hard to grasp. Heaven can seem so abstract, ethereal even. It feels like it exists in the realm of speculation or wishful thinking. And I think the third reason why we don't talk much about heaven is that we really aren't sure what the Bible teaches about it. 
We really don't know where to start. Then on top of that, there are all these popular books written by people who have had near-death experiences. They have come back after dying, and they describe all kinds of things, right? Like a warming light, or encountering loved ones who have already died, or meeting Jesus even. When I was growing up, there was this book called Heaven is for Real. It was written by a a real family where the father, who is the author, tells the story of his young son who apparently went to heaven, met Jesus, met relatives, and he had this accident when he was six years old that caused him to do this. And I mean, this book was all the rage when I was in my early high school years. Well, fast forward about 10 years later, after this young, young boy grew up into a young man, he recanted the story saying he made it up. He wrote in a letter to the publisher who published his book, he said this, he said, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. I think the young man makes a great point. Our understanding of heaven must be rooted in the Bible. It must be rooted in Holy Scripture. As Christians within the Protestant tradition, we proudly embrace God's Word as the sole, infallible, and inerrant authority for all of the Christian faith and life. If you've ever heard the phrase sola scriptura, that's what that phrase means. And last week we asked the question, or asked the question, what if heaven really is our home? And we explored the promise of heaven from Jesus' own mouth. Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for his disciples, for us, and he will come back for us, and he will take us to be with him in that place. All this begs the question that we didn't answer last week. Where is this place? How will we experience this place? So today we are going to look at Two very different passages, and I shouldn't say very different, two different passages, and I want to show that these, that the Bible's view of heaven is very different than we often think. And through these two different passages, one main point will become clear to us, and that's that heaven will be on a renewed earth. So let's dive in, and as we do, we're going to see three things that underscore this main point, and again, the main point is heaven will be on a renewed earth. So the first, the first point, the first truth, is that heaven will be more familiar than we realize. Heaven is going to be more familiar than we realize. There are many passages in the Bible that point to this, if we have the eyes to see them, but one of the clearest passages is one that Gabe explored just two weeks ago in the final message of our series on Revelation. And the passage is what was read for us earlier, um, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. And as I read this passage again, I want you to take notice of the movement and direction of the passage. The movement, surprisingly, is not upward. It's downward. The movement is not us going up to heaven, but rather heaven coming down here, heaven coming to earth. So let me read it again for us. This is what John writes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. In this passage, John is clearly remembering and relying upon the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied, For behold, I create the new heavens and the new earth. The former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. There's a vivid synthesis here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's clearly intentional. John is making a point to us. And like Isaiah, John is pointing us to a new heaven and a new earth, but he adds something. He adds something that Isaiah doesn't speak to. What is it that John adds? Well, when John clarifies that when the first heaven and earth passes, pass away, what happens is a transformation, not an eradication. What happens is a transformation, not an eradication. If you continue on down to verse 5, John gives us a divine declaration from the one who's, who's seated on the throne. God says, Behold, I am making all things new. God is not saying that he is making all new things. No. No, he says, I am making all things new. Heaven is forever established on a renewed physical earth, not an ethereal realm in the clouds. Heaven is essentially the embodiment of the phrase, what goes up must come down. If this is, if this is surprising to you, I totally understand that. It wasn't until I was in graduate school and I was studying the Bible that I began to see what Scripture had been speaking to and had been testifying to all along. Let's together, let's take some time now to consider the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. What Scripture speaks to about new creation. God made a material world in those first two chapters and he declared them to be good. And he's going to bring that good material world to completion in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the new earth. God created it good. Sin came in and the bondage of, of decay and death has fractured creation. But God intends to, to make it new, to remake it, to renew it. Take a look at this clip from the Bible Project, where they talk about the theme of, the, of heaven and earth. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So, in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. The idea that body and matter are inherently bad, and the mind, the soul, and the immaterial is pure and not a good Christian idea. This is a Greek pagan philosophical idea. The Bible rejects it. And the historic Christian tradition throughout the centuries 
has rejected it too. God made every material thing and he called it good. Nothing was a mistake or lesser. Things, objects, us, humans, our world, it's just caught in bondage and decay because of sin. And that's the fault of sin. It's not because the material world or, ma or matter, material matter, is inherently bad or impure. All of this means that heaven will be far more familiar than we realize. Certainly there will be a lot of differences, but, and we will get to those, but it will also be very familiar. Before we move on, I want to pause and just point out an implication of what this means. This means that our work now, it matters. See, when the Apostle Paul wrote his first letter to the local church in Corinth, he devotes an entire chapter to the truth of Jesus' bodily resurrection and its vast implications. We're going to go into this chapter in our next point, but I just want to dip down in it for a moment uh, because it's fascinating how Paul concludes this chapter. He points to the importance of doing our work well now. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A way that we indicate we have a hopeful anticipation of heaven is just in the simple diligence of doing to the best of our ability our Monday vocations. And our vocations and callings, these can be paid and unpaid. The idea that our work truly matters, it guides our church in the way that we say, we are a church for Monday. And it's why each Sunday here at the downtown campus, we mention our vocations and callings in our benediction, right? We say our work, each of our vocations and callings matter more than we realize, both now and in the future. The first truth that we discover in our passage is that heaven will be more familiar than we expect. And here's the second truth. Heaven will be more earthy than we expect. More earthy. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that in the new heaven and the new earth, we will have physical human bodies and we will live on a physical material earth. We will not be ghosts, angels, spirits. We will be humans. We, in humans, right? Humans have bodies. We are embodied. Certainly, we will have transformed bodies, resurrected bodies, but they will still be human bodies. Look with me at what Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 15 about this. And Paul is addressing people who think that the idea of a bodily resurrection is completely implausible and even laughable. And this is a bit longer of a passage, but let's just sit in it together as I read it. Paul says this, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, 
but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from a star in glory. So it is the same with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, Paul's point to the skeptics about the idea of a bodily resurrection is this. His logic is this. He says, you have forgotten that you see this kind of transformation all the time. He's saying, for example, when you plant a seed in the ground, the seed splits open and it dies. But it's in that process of death that the seed is actually transformed and new life comes from it and it becomes a plant. Maybe as we read the passage or I read the passage, you're thinking, Ben, isn't this a passage that says we will give up our material bodies and then we will receive an immaterial spiritual body? Well, if that's you, then I do understand how you could see that because at first in our English translation, it can look like Paul is saying that. But the translators here, they're really struggling to make the original language fully clear to us. The adjectives that are translated natural and spiritual in our passage, they're not necessarily just describing what our bodies are actually made out of. Rather, they're describing, they're not describing, again, they're not describing whether our bodies are material or immaterial. Instead, what they're describing is the life that animates the body and that powers the body. Maybe you're still thinking, wait, Ben, you stopped at verse 45, but what about verse 50? Verse 50, Paul says that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So does this mean that there is no more material matter in heaven? Well, it's a good question, but no, Paul isn't saying no more material matter. Just no more material matter that is subject to sin, and sin being death and decay. One of the first scenes of resurrection that we get in the Bible is it comes in Ezekiel. It's the Valley of Dry Bones. And this is a fascinatingly intense vision that the prophet Ezekiel has. In it, God performs the work of resurrection. And this is not resurrection from material to immaterial. The resurrection is material to new material. Let me read to you what Ezekiel writes. He says this, And he, the Lord, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter to you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and I will cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied that there was a sound, and behold, there was rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. Do you see? There's this biblical consistency between 1 Corinthians and Ezekiel that helps make clear that the resurrection is not material to immaterial. It's material to new material. And this new material, these new bodies, they are animated and they are powered by the very breath, the Ruach, the Spirit of God. The Bible affirms throughout its pages that you are a human. You have a human body. You need a physical body. But we can't just bring our old, our decaying bodies into the renewed heavens and earth. We too need renewed bodies, just like the body that Jesus had in his resurrection. Jesus' body, as proclaimed by the scriptures, was raised from the dead, and so will yours. Because Jesus had a body, and he has a physical body, heaven will be physical. Because Jesus' body matters, so does yours. Let's take a moment and recognize what this means for us and for our bodies. You know, far too often we are ashamed of our bodies. We ignore our bodies. But none of that is from Jesus. Jesus loves your body. He made it. He designed you. He crafted your hands, your nose, your eyes, your smile. There's something beautifully intimate about recognizing that Jesus made you uniquely. He wanted you to be who you are. And often when we think about it, it just sounds trite. But God formed you as he desired to form you. And he takes joy in your physical body so much so that he will remake it and he will renew it after the image of his own likeness in resurrection. It's also important to recognize that the enemy, he hates bodies. He hates yours, he hates mine. He wants to destroy them. He wants to break them down. He wants to deform them. He will also lie to you all day long that your body, this thing that you live in, is ugly. And he will also tell you what to do with it. In our world and the culture we live in, 
This is, it's, it's more often than not shaped by so many unhelpful ideas about our bodies, or it's shaped by unachievable ideals about our bodies. All of these things, they tell us what to do with our bodies, right? Do whatever you want to do. That is your power. Sleep with who you want to. Eat or drink whatever you want to. Or the converse, don't eat or drink anything that you want to. Exercise all the time. Or, right, the converse again, don't exercise at all. Why should you? It's like we all know that our bodies matter, but we're so confused about what form that should actually take. There's a peaceful and comforting whisper that we often don't listen to in light of the anxiousness we feel around our bodies. And that's that God says he loves your body. He made your body. And yes, the one you have is decaying. And that causes so much pain, not only psychologically, but for many of us also physically. We feel the physical pain of decay. But he is preparing a renewed resurrection body like Jesus's for you. Heaven will be more familiar than we realize. It will be more earthy than we expect. It will be physical, embodied. And finally, heaven is going to be more glorious than we imagine. And this is our shortest point, but it's just as meaningful as the ones that came before it. All the images that both John gives us in Revelation 21 and Paul offers us in 1 Corinthians 15, they are trying to give us an imagination and a hope for what will be. And they too offer us the understanding that we are better now than we often imagine. And as great as the joys of heaven will be, and this heaven, right, being an embodied heaven, they are, only, they are joyful only because they are enjoyed in God's presence. What makes heaven heaven is the very presence of God. Heaven is ultimately where God draws us in and, and pulls us back to himself. He brings us to himself. That's the joy of heaven. Just for a second, think about Christmas morning. When I was a kid growing up, what made Christmas morning so exciting was absolutely the presents. But if I were, as an eight-year-old Ben, to wake up to presents and I couldn't find my parents or my grandparents who were always there or my three sisters, then I wouldn't know what to do. My excitement for the presents would be very short-lived. And the same is true for heaven. Heaven is enjoyable and it's exciting because all the gifts and pleasures of a renewed heaven and earth are experienced, but they are experienced in the fullness of God's presence. Think back to Revelation 21.3. says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven is heaven because God draws us to himself. This is what makes heaven so glorious. This is ultimately the hope of heaven. God will be 
fully with us. And we will be fully with him. We are in Advent. And one of the reasons Advent is important is that it guides us into a hopeful anticipation of Christmas Day. Throughout the journey of Advent, our hope builds to Christmas Day. Our excitement builds. And Christmas Day is the first time heaven comes to earth. Heaven came in a way that the earth didn't anticipate. A little baby in swaddling clothes, born to a very young mother in the Middle East, born, in fact, to a virgin mother. As Christians, we remember this as the first advent, and we we celebrate it as the first advent. But the first advent always points us to the second advent. The second advent will be when heaven returns again, and Jesus will make all things new. As Christians, even outside of the Advent season, heaven is our horizon line. The anticipation of heaven should motivate us. should motivate us to lead lives of, lives of diligence in our work. It should guide us to love one another. It should empower us to sacrifice and to serve. And it should lead us all into that because we know that all of it has lasting and eternal value. It matters. Heaven is an embodied heaven. Two weeks ago, Gabe ended with a quote. And I think this quote suits us this morning too. And this is the quote. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since that Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, and they have become so ineffective in this. The sure you are of heaven, the more your eyes are on that horizon line, the more your hope is not rooted in the comfortable life here and now, the more you can love, serve, and sacrifice for the sake of the good of others. And as you continue on through this Advent season, I want to challenge you to remember this truth from the Nicene Creed. The Creed says this, Jesus, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. And for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And he will come again with glory and his kingdom will never end. Jesus did not come as spirit, to release us from material matter. No, he came as a human baby to redeem us, to set material matter free from its bondage to sin and decay and to make all things new. And during Advent, we choose to remember, we choose to remember that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And this is the same embodied promise that we are waiting for in the new heavens and the new earth. Would you pray with me, please? 
Father, we do thank you for your word, which speaks to us and guides us about things that we that are hard to grasp, but things that are real and true. Father, guide us as we keep thinking about heaven. Pray that heaven would shape us and form us. It would be our horizon line. It would cause us to to be diligent in our work, to serve you eagerly, to serve others eagerly, to love our neighbors, to love you with a sense of urgency and a sense of expectation. We love you, Lord. Come quickly, Jesus. Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Now as we, as we move into our time of communion, when Jesus gave us his, his promise of forgiveness of sins, he didn't give us just a thought to ponder. No. What Jesus gave us was bread to eat. And he gave us a cup of wine to drink. And he didn't do this because one day the bread and the wine would disappear. But rather, one day they will become more real and glorious than ever. There will be a day when we together as a church, we will not be sharing this meal on this side of glory. In fact, at that moment that Jesus gave his disciples the bread and the cup, at the Last Supper, he promised, he said, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine now, and until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let's remember that as I read into your hearing the words of institutions from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 26. 23 through 26, I'm sorry. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving.